We've been in this series, The Cost of Christmas, and we kind of built up, you know, we talked about the Magi, and then Joseph, and then Mary, and this morning we're going to talk about the cost of Christmas as it pertains to God himself. And if you've raised kids, or if you currently have kids, or if you've ever been a kid, and I think that's everybody in the room, then you'll recognize the universal nature of this axiomatic truth. All kids go through a stage whereby the box that the gift comes in is somehow more delightful than the gift itself. Yes, I see parents nodding, going, yes, I've seen this. Um, I mean, how, how many times has this happened? All that money that was spent on some toy is almost totally wasted as said toy sits unused and great delight is then poured out on this folded piece of cardboard. And, and we as parents just sit in dismay and just go, what in the world is that about? But I'd like to suggest that mankind does something very similar with God and the gift that he's given us, especially at Christmas. All the celebration and all the cheer and all the giving and receiving of gifts is really just the box. It's really just the box. When a person does not have Christ in them, giving them new life, that person is like a toddler consumed with the cardboard box and ignoring the gift that's been given. And for many, that's what Christmas is like. But here's what Christmas was meant to be like. There's a story that long ago there was in the land of Persia, a wise and good king. And he loved his people. And he desperately wanted to relate to them and to understood how, understand how they lived. And he wanted to know about their hardships. So very often he would sneak out of the palace and dress in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and go and visit the homes of the poor. And no one who he visited ever thought or caught on that he was their king. One time he was visiting a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food that the poor man ate and he spoke cheerful and kind words to him and then he left. Later, he again visited that same poor man and and on his second visit, he disclosed his identity saying, I am your king. Now the king thought, surely this man's gonna ask me some gift or some favor because of who I am, but he did not. Instead, he said this, this is the poor man said, You left your palace, you left your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food that I ate you. You brought gladness to my heart. To others you have given your rich gifts, but to me you have given yourself. That's that's what Christmas is. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 9, as he writes on this idea of generosity, and he would say something very similar. He's going to encourage in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, the generosity in the church. And he uses God's generosity as the motive for our generosity. And he starts with things like seed and bread, you know, things that God gives to everyone, right? Things that we need. And then he moves to what God is doing in and through his church. And then in chapter uh, 9, verse 15, he culminates with this expression of joyous recognition of the gift of Christmas. So 2 Corinthians nine fifteen says this. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. All along the way in our Christmas journey, we've looked at the cost for for those who are involved in being part of that first Christmas, for the Magi, for Joseph, for Mary. And this morning on Christmas Eve 2017, I want us to look at three components of 2 Corinthians 9.15. The gift, the giver, the gift, and our gratitude And along the way, we'll be sure to look at what it costs the Godhead to participate. But I want us to start with the giver this morning. Look at that verse. Thanks be unto God. He is the giver 
of all good gifts. When we talk about God, we talk about his attributes. This is encouraging. I'm starting to warm up. That's good. That's good. We talk about attributes of God, right? We talk about um, his eternal attributes and his contingent attributes. Did, did you know that was a division? That was a distinction? God has eternal attributes like his holiness and his uh, immutability. That means he never changes. His omniscience, he, he knows everything, the omnis, right? Um, but then he has contingent attributes. Those are things that are true of God only as he relates to the thing that he has made, his creation. So his sovereignty is a contingent attribute. His, his providence is a contingent attribute. And so um, this will serve us well in a moment as we talk about the gift that's been given, okay? But have you ever noticed that at this time of year, most conversations turn to, what do you want for Christmas? And then, and then someone will reciprocate that and say, well, what do you want for Christmas? And, and as a chaplain, I get to go to businesses every week and make my rounds to all the people that work at those businesses. And that's been my conversation the last two weeks. So what's number one on your Christmas list? And, uh, and then they'll ask me the same thing. And, and I'll just say, you know, listen, would you just do me a favor and, you know, don't spend more than two or $300 on me this year because it's embarrassing when you do that. And, um, and that's the response that I get from them too. So, and, and most of the guys in the plant, the, the ductwork plant say, well, I'm going to spend uh, as much this year on you as I spent on you last year, which is nothing. So I just take it. I take it as it comes. But it's human nature. We love gifts. We love gifts. I know I do. I love gifts so much. I, I, I thought I, I would tell you about the greatest gift giver I've ever known. And his name is God. Do you, do you think about him that way? Do you think about God as the greatest gift giver that's ever existed? It's true. I mean, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. Listen to the scriptures in James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So think first of the gracious giver of this gift, if you go back to 2 Corinthians 9 and you look at verse 7 where Paul's working himself up to that verse 15, he says in verse 7, every man according to what he has purposed in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, it actually, in the Greek, it's God loves a hilarious giver, right? He wants people that are just excited to give good gifts to the kingdom because that's a reflection of who he is. He loves to give. He loves to be generous. And that which God admires and requires in others, he is and does himself. He is the original cheerful giver. So think of the ability of the giver. The Bible tells us that he's rich in goodness, that he's rich in grace, he's rich in glory. If he had given the entire universe wrapped up in one package, it would have been pocket change compared to the gift that he's given us at Christmas. So not just his ability and the graciousness of the giver, but think about the awareness of the giver. How many of you would, would count yourself in the number of people who've received a Christmas gift from somebody, whether they were family or friends or acquaintance, and you just go, what is this? And why do I need this? And it ends up on the pile of discarded, it goes to the island of misfit toys with all the other, right? It, it ends up in the pile somewhere in the back room because you're like, I don't, I don't even know what I would use this for. You, you get the obligatory gift that it has no purpose, but think about the gift that this giver has given to humanity. This gift speaks to the, the deepest and most direct need and longing of sinful human beings. When you stop and think of it, it, it's likely that there's someone on your gift list 
for whom you buy a gift simply out of obligation. Right? Somebody on your gift list, you guys, yeah, I'm obligated. I got to get that person a gift. And uh, if you're a Scrooge in the room, under your breath, you're going, yeah, that's all of them, right? <laughs> um, but there's somebody that you feel obligated to. We're, and we're fairly accustomed to this idea that we owe something to someone because of their generosity. And I found that through the years, it's funny, doing campus ministry, uh, we would try to give free things away to students on campus and it would not go well. And we would charge them a really minimal, like a dollar or two dollars or something. Then suddenly there were people lined up because they felt like they had given something to get something back. They didn't want a free thing. That was an affront to them. And you can chalk that up to human pride. We're people that are quick to give others to others in need, but, but when we're in crisis, we're very reluctant to receive help even when we legitimately need it. And so the challenge of the gospel lies precisely in this reality of the human heart that we've been given a gift that's so great and so magnanimous that we can never come close to even repaying it. We're simply asked to receive it in faith. And that's an affront to our pride. And what a reminder that this gift, the foundation of our faith, is rooted in God's action and God's provision, not ours. He initiated. We love because he first loved us. He's a gracious and he's a generous giver. Thanks be unto God, he's a generous giver. But for his unspeakable gift, let's talk about the gift Let's talk about the only begotten son. First John 4, 9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And of course, John three sixteen and 17, some people don't know that there's a verse 17, but there is. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the incarnation. How many of you, carne asada, Mexican place, salivating already, right? It's flesh, it's meat. God wrapped in meat. That's a pretty crude way to put it. He's wrapped in flesh, God in flesh, right? One of the earliest formulations of this is the Nicene Creed adopted in 325 AD, which says this, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Now, other religions down through the ages have had stories of God's taking human form, Greek and Roman mythology, full of those stories. But this is quite different here. God didn't just look human, he became fully human. And so our Christmas carols echo this theological reality. We sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? We just sing that. And then, O come all ye faithful, we sing, uh, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, right? So what does that mean for us? That God would wrap himself in flesh and become a human being. What does that mean? Well, it means several things. It means that God's on our side. He's for us and not against us. He's not some distant deity judging and hurling thunderbolts from heaven. He made himself weak and vulnerable. And though he's infinitely above us, he chose to come down alongside us. It means that God understands us. I mean, he's God. Of course he understands us, but we don't have a high priest, Hebrews 4 says, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. 
We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are and yet who is without sin. The incarnation means that God has identified himself completely with us so that we can be completely identified with him. It means that every part of us is under his lordship. Your body is under his lordship. Your physical body, your mind, your thoughts are under his lordship. Your soul, your feelings, your will, your emotions, all of it's under his lordship. It's a constant reminder of how God chooses to reveal himself. At Christmas, we think of Christ as the baby, vulnerable and helpless there in the manger, but still being God. And C.S. Lewis would put it in the last battle. I love, you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia. Do yourself a favor, over the break, read the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis said, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. The incarnation reminds us that God is in the small and helpless things and that we should care about those things. The incarnation affirms the goodness of physical existence. It's common to believe that somehow physical matter is inherently inferior to the spiritual world. Uh, This leads many Christians to devalue their bodies or neglect their responsibilities. But the fact that our holy God was willing to unite with a physical body in the person of Jesus affirms that God approves of physical and earthly existence. He didn't come to eradicate the world. He came to redeem it and to make it new. The incarnation means that God was willing to get involved and to get up on his elbows into the dirt and mire and, and get engaged with us. When things go wrong, there's no shortage of people willing to voice their criticism and complaint. A very few people step into the problem and get their hands dirty to bring about a solution. We serve a God who stepped into our crud, into our sin, to make a way for us to be redeemed. The incarnation makes it possible for sin to be covered and atoned for. In Leviticus 17, 11, we're told that it's in the life that's in the blood that makes atonement. So in order for our sins to be covered, blood has to be shed. But if God is an invisible spirit, how can he shed blood? The incarnation is the answer. Jesus had to be made like them, Hebrews 2 says, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Indeed, Jesus was born to die and to live again so that you and I would find life in him. And then this crazy thing, he grew. God grew. I've always struggled with this. I just got to tell you, God's perfect. He doesn't need anything. He's not deficient in any way, and yet he grew. It was when he came to earth as a human, having created the angelic realm, having created the whole universe, John 1, 3, having created human life, having collaborated with the Father to establish the plan of eternal salvation, now he's going to experience what physical is like, to be physical. Blood pumping through his veins. God sweating under the noonday sun. God crying tears of joy or tears of pain, having human emotions, physical pain, hunger, friendship. These were things God had not experienced. He was only a spirit before. Now that's the only, is that like less than, but limited in experience. The physical realm didn't even exist for most of eternity. God, God was around, content and sufficient within himself. But there was no experience of what being physical was like. When he did become human, he committed 100%, voluntarily, voluntarily setting aside some of his privileges and prerogatives as God, Philippians 2. And he grew from sympathy 
to empathy. Do you understand the difference from sympathy to empathy? Sympathy says, oh, that must hurt. Empathy says, ouch, I know how that feels. God went from sympathy to empathy in the incarnation. And he learned obedience. This is the verse I've struggled with most of my life. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Did you catch that? He learned obedience. He learned obedience. For the longest time, this is one of those passages that you just accept because it's in God's word. You go, well, it's there. It's true. Okay. But, but personally, I've just wrestled with it, knowing that you can't, I can't reason it out or make sense of it. So I just want to give John Piper credit this morning. I'm going to read you a quote. John Piper says this. He learned obedience means Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested and proven obedience. Now, if you think about it, if you're good enough, you can learn a new task without failing at it. And the new task that Jesus had to learn every hour, especially at the ending of his life, was this. Can I endure this suffering that I've never experienced before? This new obedience that I've never performed before in the history of the universe. Can I learn and do this perfectly without failing, without falling into unbelief and murmuring? And the answer of Hebrews is yes, he could and he did. He learned obedience in what he suffered and he never, never, never failed, not once in the process of perfect learning, proven and tested obedience. And on the night before he was to be tortured and executed in some of the most painful ways that mankind has ever dreamt up, he knew what was awaiting him. He knew what fleshly pain was going to feel like. He knew what a crucifixion looked like up close as a human. He knew the agony that those who are crucified experience. But even worse, he was also in agony that night because of his impending separation from the Father. It's the most important relationship in his life. It's part of the plan. He knew that taking on the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future, meant that he would temporarily be forsaken by God with no helper and no father to help him through that moment. That meant that he would be completely alone for the very first time. On that night in the garden, as he was realizing that, he was about to be tortured and experience a loneliness deeper than anything anyone has ever felt. The gravity of the physical pain and spiritual emptiness hit him so hard that he sweat blood. Obedience took on new meaning for Christ in those moments. He prayed to God, if there's any other way, Yet despite it all, he obeyed perfectly. And the stakes of the obedience were so high because it meant salvation for you and me. He obeyed perfectly. No one could ever accuse God of not understanding, ever. Of being too distant, too far removed, being aloof, blissfully ignorant of what we physical human beings suffer and endure and feel. No one can ever accuse him of that, ever, ever again. Jesus Christ experienced everything. He overcame the world so that we can have hope that we will overcome ourselves, John 16, 33, and that we will have eternal life. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The giver, 
the gift. And now let's talk about our gratitude. Thanks be unto God. We should be giving thanks to God. This is why we saved most of our worship and music for the end of our service today, because we want to take some time to be grateful before him. Christmas was costly for the Trinity. Christmas was costly for Jesus, the beloved son, truly God. He left the glory of heaven to wrap himself in humanity, completely vulnerable, arrived as a baby, a helpless infant. He set aside his divine rights and he made himself nothing. He became a humble servant and endured the cruel brutality of those he came to save. He obediently gave everything, even his life on the cross. God the Father, the Father watched his own son experience the pain and the cruelty of the rejection of sinful humanity. And then the Father, out of love for that same humanity, laid on Jesus all the sin of the whole world so that that penalty could be paid. The father's cost was great. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And now it's upon us to receive this unspeakable gift. Realize, please realize that God did this with no strings attached. He leaves a choice to you and I if we want a relationship with him. That price has been paid in full whether you accept it or not but he leaves it up to you if you will apply the payment and be redeemed. God paid the cost for his own enemies. Think think about that. He paid the cost for his enemies. The father allowed humans to murder his son, but the father poured out his wrath and judgment on his own son to pay the penalty that was due because of that same sin. That's graciousness. That's not the work of a cruel God, but a sacrificial and loving God. It's a God who loves the humanity that he's made. Our response has to be more than just words as we receive the gift of Christmas. Let's not be the toddler consumed with the box instead of embracing the gift. We need to take the gift. We need to put it to use. Jen's grandmother, before she passed, was old school. Grandma June would, um, well, I'll stop short of saying demand a thank you. Um, but really it was a demand. Um, if, if, if you had gotten a gift or if, you, you know, if she didn't get a thank you in a certain amount of time, she was calling you, right? She had mailed a gift and she knew it arrived and it had been 24 hours and you hadn't called or sent a note or something. And she, she was calling you. Did you get that gift? Which is her way of saying, were you going to thank me for that, right? Um, it, do we all have relatives like that? We all have family like that. And, and the obligatory thank you, whether it was a note or a phone call, was expected. And, uh, and she, she, she had me trained after the first couple of years of marriage, I had to, Grandma June needs a thank you. And, and uh, Jen's mom is a little like that now, more so, you know. And, and so we, we all have that, right? We all have that person. Who's, they need that thank you. They need to hear it. And I'm not like that at all. In fact, I'm the, I'm the opposite. I give a gift to somebody. I don't, I don't necessarily want to hear thank you. I just want to see you enjoy the gift. And I give a gift to one of the kids and they take it. and they, Oh boy, and when they were little and they just start playing with it. That's thank you to me, right? Because they're taking the gift and they're, they're, they're using it, they're enjoying it, the very thing I wanted for them to do. And, um, and so it's just interesting the way we're wired. But, but imagine that, you know, I was at Grandma June's house one Christmas morning and I unwrapped a gift that she had given me in her presence, went right over to her and said, thank you, Grandma June, for this wonderful gift. And then I set it on the ground and didn't touch it again. What would that communicate? It's just lip service. 
I just said thank you because she expects to hear thank you. I didn't like the gift. I don't, I didn't, we left the house and went somewhere else and didn't even remember to put it in the car. I didn't, I didn't appreciate that gift. Right? I'm not truly thankful. Put it to use. God has given you a tremendous gift in Christ Jesus at Christmas. And if you just say, thank you, God, and you don't put it to use, you're not really thankful. You're not really embracing the gift. And then the other thing, this is what happens. Um, when you're a kid, you get a Christmas gift, and, and it was the thing you wanted, and then you couldn't wait to tell who. All your friends, because you'd all been talking about what you wanted and you're hoping to get, and then you rush up the street to your friend's house to talk about who got the better gift and excited about getting together to play with their toys and all that stuff, right? You, you talk about the gift when you're excited about the gift. You talk about what you got for Christmas, right? I just don't know what better gift we could get than the gift of salvation and why we wouldn't be so excited to talk about this gift that we've received from God, that we would put it to use and we would talk about it. Well, it's funny because it's exactly what he says in Matthew 20, 28, 19 19 and 20 in the Great Commission, when he says, go into all the world and, and tell every nation to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's really, are you excited about the gift? Because if you are, you'll go and you'll, you'll tell people, you'll put it to use and you'll tell people about it. Right? Are you excited about the gift God's given you for Christmas? I want to finish this morning with the story of the pearl diver. I, I, I read the story this week for the first time in and maybe it was because I was already sick. You know when you're sick, you're more emotional. Anybody get emotional when they get sick? Like when I'm feeling weak, and like I could watch a Hallmark movie and just be in tears. Whereas normally I'm watching a Hallmark movie and I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But when I'm sick, I'm like, I'm weeping, right? And, and I read this story earlier in the week and I, and I just, man, it had me in tears. And I thought, okay, I should read that when I'm feeling better to see if it was really legit. And, and it was, and it is. This is a story I think really encapsulates this idea of this gift and what it should bring about in our hearts. And I'll I'll just end with this this morning. Missionary David Morse had been watching Rambo. Rambo was an old Indian pearl diver. He was going down and, and, and coming back up, emerging from the water. He had a big oyster between his teeth. He climbed back over into the boat. Look at this one, Sahib said the diver. I think it will be good. As the missionary took that oyster and pried it open with his pocket knife, Rambo was pulling other small oysters from his bag. Rambo, look, exclaimed the missionary. Why, it's a treasure. Yeah, it's a good one, shrugged the diver. (laughs) Good. Have you ever seen a better pearl? It's perfect, isn't it? Oh, yes, there are better pearls, much better. Well, I have one. And his voice trailed off. See this one? The imperfections, the black specks here, this tiny dent. Even the shape, it's a little bit oblong. It's good as pearls go. And the missionary changed the direction of the conversation. And addressing the pearl diver, he said, Rambo, I've said to you many times, I say again, you know there's only one way to heaven. And you see, Rambo, you're older now. Perhaps this is your last season of diving for pearls. If ever you want to see heaven's gates made of pearl, you must accept the life that God offers you and his son. My last season? Yes, you are right. Today was my last day of diving. This is the last month of the year, and I have preparations to make. 
Yes, you do, said the missionary. You should be preparing for the life to come. But that's just what I'm going to do, said the man. Do you see that man over there on the shore? He is a pilgrim. He walks barefooted, and he picks the sharpest stones. And every few rods, he kneels down and he kisses the road. The first day of the new year, I will begin my pilgrimage. All my life, I have planned it. I shall make sure of heaven this time. I'm going to do it on my knees. Rambo, my friend, you can't. How can I let you do this when Jesus Christ has died to purchase heaven for you? But the old man would not be moved. He could not understand. He could not accept the free salvation of Christ. Many days later, one afternoon, that old pearl diver called the missionary's house and asked to come to his house for a short time, asked asked the missionary to come to his house for a short time, that he had something to show him. And on the way to Rambeau's house, Morse learned that the diver was setting out on his long pilgrimage in just a week's time, and his heart sank. He entered and was seated there in Rambeau's house. While the owner left the room, the missionary wondered what he could say to the old man. He returned with a very small but very heavy strong box, and he said, I have had this box for years. I keep only one thing in it, and now I will tell you about it, Sahib Morse. I once had a son. My son was a diver, too. He was the best pearl diver on the coast of India. He had the swiftest dive, keenest eye, strongest arm, longest breath of any man who sought for pearls. What joy he brought me. He always dreamed of finding a pearl beyond all that had ever been found. And one day he found it. And when he had found it, he'd already been underwater for too long. And soon after, he lost his life. The old pearl diver bowed his head for a moment. His whole body shook. All these years I have kept this pearl, he continued. But now I am going not to return. And you, my dear friend, to you I give my pearl. Then he drew from the box a carefully wrapped package and opened the cotton and picked out the mammoth pearl and placed it in the hands of the missionary. It was one of the largest pearls ever found off the coast of India. It glowed with a luster and brilliance never seen in cultured pearls. It would have brought a fabulous sum in any market. And for a moment, the missionary was speechless and he gazed at it with awe. Rambo, he said, this is a wonderful pearl. It's an amazing pearl. Let me buy it from you. I will give you 10,000 rupees for it. Sahib, said Rambo, stiffening his whole body. This pearl is beyond price. No man in all the world has money enough to pay for what this pearl is worth to me. On the market, a million rupees could not buy it. I will not sell it. You may have it, but only as a gift. No, Rambo, I cannot accept that. As much as I want the pearl, I cannot accept it that way. Perhaps I am proud, but this is too easy. I must pay you for it or work for it. The pearl diver was stunned. You do not understand it all, Sahib. Do you not see? My only son gave his life for this pearl, and I would not sell it for any money. Its worth is in the lifeblood of my son, and I cannot sell this. But please permit me to give it to you. Just accept it as a token of the love that I bear for you. For a moment, that missionary could not speak. And then gripping the hand of the old man, he said in a low voice, Rambo, that is precisely what you have been saying to God. 
He is offering you eternal life as a free gift. It's so great and so priceless that no man on earth could buy it. No man on earth could earn it. No man is good enough to deserve it. It cost the lifeblood of his only son to make an entrance for you into heaven. In a hundred pilgrimages, you could never earn that entrance. And all you can do is accept it as a token of God's love for you, a sinner. I will accept this pearl in deep humility, but won't you accept God's gift of eternal life in deep humility, knowing that it costs him the death of his son in order to offer it to you? Great tears were running down the cheeks of the old man. The veil was lifting, and he understood at last. Sahib, I see it now. I believe Jesus gave himself for me. I accept him. God, would you work in our hearts? so that some might receive the gift of Christmas for the first time. Some in our own families, our immediate families, some uh, in close proximity to us. For those of us who've already received the gift of of Christmas, Lord, I pray that you would make it new in our hearts again today. And as we celebrate today and tomorrow and the days to come, feasting and meals and laughter, we would not be consumed with the box so much as we are delighting in the gift itself. Father, cause our hearts to be overjoyed and overwhelmed that we might put the gift to use and that we might go and tell others about the gift. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen.